Welcome, everyone, to the REST podcast, where our goal is to help each and every one of you displace confusion, chaos, and dis-ease in order to heal and find significance in life. I am your host, Natalie Williams, and I am here with the author of The Reconstitution Method for Healing and REST, Virginia Dixon. Hi, Natalie. Hi, Virginia. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. I'm happy to be back at the villa. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Miss recording here. Yeah, agreed. We've had a lot of Zoom recordings the past few weeks. A lot. Yeah, but it's great. And today we have David Zaylor, the author of The Death of a Fisherman. Hi, David. Hello. How are you guys? Doing good. Thank you so much for joining us today. Virginia, you had a lot to say about this book. <clears throat> I did. And David, thank you again for coming. I want to get right to it because I know we don't have a lot of time. But The Death of a Fisherman, The Memoirs of Family, Faith, and Forgiveness. What inspired you to finally write this book? Well, we have a mutual friend, Joey O'Connor. He and I were having Mm -hmm. coffee one day. He said, hey, why don't you write a memoir? And I said, absolutely not. I have no time. I have no interest. Yeah. And that was the end of it, I thought. But that same year, I'd been traveling back and forth to Houston, my hometown, where my parents are buried. Mm. And I made four trips there that year for business. Each trip, I was there for three, four days. Every day I was there, I went to my parents' grave, sometimes once, sometimes twice a day. And my mother was buried there in 1986 suicide. Mm. My father was buried there in 2015. He and I had not spoken in 14 years. Wow. Wow. So a lot of emotion. And I came back to Joey and I said, Hey, I think I'm just going to write some essays Mm -hmm. about these trips to the grave site. Because I met some interesting people like I was befriended by a grave digger. And this interesting little lady who sold me flowers was like a little prophet. Mm-hmm. And I thought I was just going to write some essays. And then as I began to write the essays, I realized they would never make sense unless I wrote some of the backstory. I agree. You said, in, and on page 27, it said, conflicted feelings of love and shame stirred inside of me whenever I looked at just photos. Yeah. So during that period, going right. and coming... You really slowly tiptoed into the memories and the images that really shaped so much of your life. There was was some, I would say, reluctant intention to go in that direction. As most of the world who knows anything about me knows that I'm a man in long-term recovery from serious addiction. So I've learned the benefit of doing some hard inner work. I wasn't overly intimidated by this. Is that what it took to overcome the addictions is to really go through the intricacy of revisiting some of the painful things that you document in this book? I certainly think this was part of my long-term journey. Mm -hmm. Addiction recovery certainly begins with changing our behavior. Mm -hmm. And we don't get any traction forward as long as we continue to destroy ourselves. At the same time, it becomes almost impossible to continue that forward movement without addressing underlying issues. We're going to discuss this in future podcasts, When Lost Men Come Home, because you are an authority on this subject. 
And this conversation of addiction is very Mm -hmm. near and dear to my heart because I believe that at the root of addiction is idolatry. And that's a big word. And I'd love to unwrap that with you. Okay. But tell me the gravesite visits, the interesting relationships you developed (laughs) with people there going and coming. That's really unusual to go to a graveside after Mm -hmm. so many years, two times a day, when you live in Southern California. Right. What do you think compelled you to do that? Well, it was a myriad of things, uh, not the least of which was guilt. My mother was buried there in 86, and I had never been back to her grave since the day she was buried. And I felt a lot of guilt and shame about that. I had a lot of affection, a lot of warm memories from my, from my mother, even though she was a woman who battled illness. And you can't say she was a great mother, but she loved the best she could. On page 31, you said, My mother had the face of a woman suffering dark secrets that she kept to herself. Mm-hmm. And that really impacted me. Because mm-hmm. feelings buried alive with those secrets, they never die, and they right. ultimately destroy us slowly from the inside out. Right. By the way, I think that's the anatomy of mental illness, is those secrets. And we go through great pains to peel the layers back to get to those hidden secrets. And by the way, some of them she may not even have been aware of or known. She inherited from generations. No doubt. No doubt. And also, you know, in the generation, I mean... My parents were deeply dedicated Baptists, and in the 60s and 70s, divorce wasn't an option. She was stuck in a miserable, loveless, lifeless world. Mm. Was it from a refusal to deal with those secrets and a tendency to avoid the reality of what was happening? I don't think it was a refusal. I think it was just a powerlessness. She was Mm -hmm. keeping somebody else's secrets. Mm-hmm. So she felt that to compromise those secrets would yeah. have she was violated another person, or did she do it to protect herself because she didn't have the fortitude to leave the marriage? I, I she certainly didn't have the fortitude or the means, means. to leave the me- That's to leave the message to, yeah. to leave the marriage. And again, in the culture, the culture is one that didn't didn't offer options there. No. And as the years unfolded and she became more eroded. It's a great word. It breaks you down. Yeah. Over time, it was just, I mean, she was not in control of the money, the family money. She did not have family anywhere close. She was bonded to, and I would even say circumstantially enslaved to her husband. Mm. You said something on page 39, and I'm sorry to be flicking through the book while you're talking, but your trigger, I wanted to have a conversation with you about a number of these things. (laughs) You said, we would do anything for my dad, but we were mostly his stage props. Mm. He stood in front of us when we made him look good, or he would hide behind us when he needed to using our shortcomings to hide his own. Mm -hmm. My father's secrets were his most protected possession. Perhaps mom had access to some of those secrets. Oh, she knew them all. Yeah. 
and they were the things that destroyed her. We, when we don't step into a place of rest, relational, emotional, spiritual truth within Mm -hmm. ourselves, and rest is all about that, it brings so much destruction. Well, she didn't have a family. Yeah, she had no allies in this. None. That's interesting. Why do you think the power of her faith and the authority of the Holy Spirit at work in her? Why do you think she didn't? Was it the very secrets that inhibited even that relationship with God? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, absolutely. I mean, when when someone prays, God, you know, help me, give me a better life, and no help comes along in order to move into a better life, it's hard not to be hopeless at that point. But sometimes the help comes, but the inclination to protect the secrets overrides well i can't speak capacity. yeah you know, i can't speak for my mom and yeah. but uh, watching this was hard for you yeah you know as a child growing up in the middle of it you don't know any different and i think what started to change my lens and my perspective was decades later as an adult when mm-hmm. i went into recovery from my own addictions it began working those darn twelve steps. <laughs> yeah, they they do they do peel the onion of our soul, mm-hmm. and I began to develop a new lens, and I began to see things differently. And I actually confronted my father. Mm. What was that like? Well, he went silent. He never spoke to me again. I emailed him, and uh, I write about it in the book. And I don't want to give, I don't want to spoil the book for the people <laughs> who are reading it. But I gathered up the gumption. And I had some people who were helping me in the recovery process. My my sponsor for my 12-step meeting, and I had a counselor. And um, with their help and guidance, I wrote a letter to my dad. And I called him on the phone, and I, I queued the letter up in an email. And I called him up said, hey, how you doing? Um, and this was right before a trip where I was planning to go see him. And I was going down to see him a lot at this point in my life. And um, I called him up and said, hey, I got an email here. Um, I know I'm going to see you in a few days, but I'm just going to send you this email. Read it and call me back. He said, well, I got people over tonight. I'll call you. I'll read it and call you tomorrow. Mm. I said, great. Okay. Sounds good. He never called. Mm. Which was consistent with what it was like to be raised by him. He was right. avoidant. Yeah. And I was, was no longer a well-behaved st- stage prop for him. That's right. So... At that point, my value to him went right out the window. Mm. Because it, you confronted him with the truth. Yeah, and it took, it. and again, this is, you know, I'm, I'm 40 years old at this when this is mm. happening. Actually, I think I was 42. But didn't it also give you permission and release you to then close that door? You know, looking back now, I realized the next five years of my life, I grew tremendously. That's right. I, I really became my own man. That's right. Mm. Yeah. You finally flew into the storm. Well, I, I became my own man as, as opposed to living in the shame of being my father's son. Mm. I'm so, so impressed by how you're able to articulate mm. that pilgrimage. You can see that you've really put in the de- mm. decades of work into your personal recovery, mm-hmm. but ultimately the pilgrimage through recovery took you right back to the thing that if it was mitigated, right? The mm. conflict, the confusion, the chaos, right. the disease from home, that if you would have had the resources then 
to process this, perhaps your relationship, your propensity to self-medicate wouldn't have been there. The need to medicate wouldn't have been there. No doubt. And, And in hindsight, I realized that there were offerings of help to me, certainly as a young man in my 20s and in my 30s, but I wasn't ready. Mm. And I have a dear friend who's come through his own addiction recovery journey, and he has a son, an adult son who is now, you know, moving into his addiction journey. Mm. And we all have a road to travel. In hindsight, it's so easy to go back, go, dang, I should have done this better, or I should have done that. And I guess that's helpful to be reflective and to help us, you know, and I know for me that helps me to be alert so that I don't miss opportunities in the future. At the same time, the value is in the journey. Yes, it is. It's And it it, doesn't end until we die. Right, and... You know, we, I think so often our, our, we, we want to shortcut the journey because the journey is difficult. It's and, brutal. Yeah, it's brutal and it's exhausting. But, you know that, but the alternative is death. Exactly. It's a slow death. Right, exactly. Painful as the journey of recovery is, the alternative is a slow death. Right. And it's more painful mm-hmm. because it doesn't just destroy you. It destroys right. everything around you. Yeah. Wh- whichever way you go, there's challenge and discomfort. When people are leaning into it, and I like to use the word facing, when we face ourselves and when we face the reality of our addictions and our dependencies and our dysfunction, when we face that, there is inherent dignity in that. And even though I, you know, I may say to myself, my gosh, I'm getting my butt kicked every day. But if I'm in the journey and I'm facing it, there's dignity in that. You know what occurs to me, Natalie, as Mm. David is saying this? That's what we call self-govern. Yeah. If we do not have the capacity to self-govern and exercise the liberty, which is a function of the soul that's accessible to us, right? Mm -hmm. To make those decisions of conscience, we will never be free. Yeah. So we always talk about internal, the root cause and the external consequence. So we help people understand that the discussion of freedom is futile if you don't understand principles of liberty. So liberty is a function of the soul, and you just described it in the most practical of ways, dealing with an addiction. Mm-hmm. You must self-govern. There's a sentence, you, and I want you to comment on this. Okay. It's so much easier to inflict pain on others than to face it for ourselves. That was yeah. a powerful statement. Yeah, I don't have anything really to add to that. But in, what, in, the, in context of what you were just talking about, The pilgrimage of recovery is the inverse of that. It's being willing to face the pain myself so that I don't inflict pain on others. It's the whole hurt people, hurt people people, thing. Yeah. Yeah. And the pilgrimage you were discovering is the exact opposite of that. Right. So here's the question. Do you want comfort in the here and now? Or do you want good and life going forward and I'm you know I'm certainly familiar with the very popular term phrase that hurt people hurt people Mm -hmm. but I I think that's tremendously incomplete yeah from our hurt comes great empathy and compassion 
And when we when we learn to take our hurt and and have a community in it, and just a little sidebar here, first thing that God says about people in scriptures, let us make man in our image. Father, Son, and I really believe that to be a healthy human being means that we are in a community of existence with ourselves, God, and other people. Mm. And I, I think that that reflects the image of how we were created. So sadly, people, I think, often, especially, and this is a result of, of being shamed or shunned, mm-hmm. people think, oh my gosh, I have to get myself together so that people are going to like me or so that I can be acceptable. Or so I can be in control. Or, or somebody will hurt me again. Right. Mm-hmm. right. Yeah. It's, I think it's better to it's like look around and perhaps you need to find some places where there are hurt people who recognize that they don't have their act together and that they're still in process, but they know how to walk the journey mm-hmm. and saddle mm-hmm. up and ride with them. And that's why I believe the conversation in how we address mental health, going back to your sweet mom, has to change. Because as we step into these places of rest, Mm -hmm. perhaps before the addictions completely ravage our life, we can build those communities. When you talked about the community of pain, Mm -hmm. well, you're describing the human race. Uh, That's our common humanity, right? right? right. And I believe that the person, the historic person of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, when he invited people Mm -hmm. into a place of rest, Mm -hmm. is because he knew that he had the resources to help us reconcile those deep conflicts within Mm -hmm. ourselves and be free Mm -hmm. and to bring that to others. And I think Mm -hmm. that is the community in our pain is just being sensitive to our own depravity, our Mm -hmm. own brokenness. Right. Take us through the book really quick. The beginning was pretty much we covered a little bit of it. Dad, Mm -hmm. that sentence on the props, Mm -hmm. putting you in the forefront and then in the back, that, was amazing a window into mom how she wasn't just a victim in the relationship there were things and she couldn't access herself and process for whatever reasons she didn't have a lot of options no how it impacted you as a little as a young boy i want you to discuss that with us because there's so many people that find that have a similar story yeah it is heartbreaking for me to reflect on how I perceive my mother. Still too painful. Um, as No, no, it's not too painful now, but it's heartbreaking to think about how I saw her and treated her. Mm-hmm. She was our scapegoat mm-hmm. in the family. She mm-hmm. was the sick one. Mm-hmm. And as long as everybody knew that she was the sick one, then no one would know how sick the rest of us were. Um, and what's wow. interesting is after her death, I became the sick one in the family. And I took on that role until I got into recovery and began to get some awareness of that. But as a child growing up, I just, uh, my mom wasn't there for significant amounts of time because she was institutionalized. I I just have to pause for a minute. What you said, David, I've never heard any single person say it with such clarity. Mom was a scapegoat in the family. And as long as everybody knew that we all understood how sick she was, it really right. continued the pattern that dad had ushered in with the authority that he had into the family right. is when mom was center stage, then he could hide himself. He could hide behind her right. brokenness. 
and everybody and, and else he, became accustomed. And he would accustomed. make himself look, you know, like this pathetic, forlorn man who was stuck with this sick, miserable wife. And would, he relished in that emperor role. emperor has no clothing kind of thing? Do you think people were aware of what he was doing and what was going on and how know. sick the family was? I don't know. You don't know? Yeah, I, I don't spend a lot of time... Yeah. Thinking about what other people were thinking. thinking. But you personally, during that time, mm-hmm. felt heartbroken and felt pain. Now, as an adult, looking back. Well, here, here's where the timeline was. I was emotionally disconnected from both my parents because they weren't offering a connection. And they're the parent. I'm the child. Until I was 25 years old. And I, I write about this book in the book a little bit because the book isn't about this. But it's a little bit of a sidebar. And maybe for, my, for the sake of my own growth, I should write a little essay to myself on this. I was 25 years old, and I was tremendously heartbroken over losing a girl that I loved, and I wanted to marry her. I had already started drifting into my alcoholism. Mm-hmm. And I could stop, but I couldn't stay stopped. And she was smart enough not to marry a man like that. And I was so heartbroken that, and I, and I was actually living in San Diego at that time, but moved back to Houston. When my mother, and I wrote about in the book, when she came to comfort me, and again, I'm not going to talk about it too much because I don't want to spoil the book for people who are reading it. But my mother, she knew how to make good use of her pain. Mm-hmm. She knew instinctively that I was crushed and heartbroken. And she found something within herself where she was, she became a mother to her child who needed comfort. And when I realized that that's what she was doing, it radically changed my view of her. Never again did I think of her as less than. Never again did I evaluate her or assess her based solely on her sickness. I saw and I experienced how much love she had for her son, and I considered my, myself grateful that she was my mother. Wow. There was a part in the book that preceded your age of 24. Yeah. And it was a segment when you were, I think you were in the car with her. And she yeah. asked you some very specific, painful things. Right. And you were cruel to her. Yeah, just like my father was to her. Exactly. Yeah. And you knew you were doing it, and you did it anyway. Well, and I... And she never... What What was that like? Because I think that what? was an when, effort for her to be intimate with somebody. Right. She was trying to engage her son to help her son. That's right. And I was going to have none of it. I was a teenager. Yeah. I just got my driver's license, and I was driving... We were, she was my passenger. I was driving home. We were coming home from church, for all, of all things. And I remember how I screamed and yelled at her, and I wrote about this. I, I really thought about leaving it out of the book because it makes me look like such a jerk. I loved um, it. That was one of my favorite parts of your you know, book. Thank you. Because you were honest, thank vulnerable. You. And I have to say, I cried at that well, part because she put all so her hard. pain she tried so hard she and for so her hard. that was like gasping for the, a last she breath was, well she was risking a lot because she cared for her son and she knew that something bad had happened to me mm-hmm. um she recognized the pain yeah 
Now, at the time, I was so immature. The only modeling I had for dealing with such things was from my father, and I, and I treated her just like the way he treated her, um, which made all of this. So, you know, decades later, when I'm coming to Houston, and, of course, we all carry our history inside of us. Mm-hmm. And... Um, a lot of these trips to the gravesite was going back and allowing myself to say things to my mother and to hear myself say them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to make emotional amends to her and to myself. I will tell you this that God had bigger plans than that. And again, I write about it in the book that God was actually taking me on a much further journey on that where I could also not just make amends with myself and with my mother, but I could go back and make peace with my father. And I could be someone who brought forgiveness back into the memories. And I could become a person who no longer resented or even hated my father. I don't have to do that anymore. What was the catalyst? to that kind of forgiveness? I think it's something in my heart that I truly wanted, but I didn't know how to do it, and I was afraid to do it. You know, resentment is a powerful thing, and it's resentment and anger is self-protective. You know, it's... it's. Uh, I remember, and I'm not going to talk about specific, because again, it's, it's in the book, but in, in these little little baby steps along the way I was come to a point where I was just making little steps beyond my resentment and I was going to places beyond the safety of anger and I was getting to the point where I where I could let my father off the hook and learn what it meant to have my own life and my own existence without the protective layer of rage I really like that point, the protective layer of rage, the safety of anger. I think that a lot of people actually use anger as kind of like a shield. Absolutely. Well, it's funny that you should bring that up and that point up because I think something that made it difficult for me to connect with you as I was beginning to read three quarters of the book <laughs> and I was I realized how jaded I've become by the darkness of the things I'm hearing yeah. and the rate at which they're escalating. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one thing that struck me. The other thing that struck me is I was not a compliant child in the same ways. I was compliant and I was very sensitive. I carried a lot of the emotional weight of my family, especially in the immigration process coming to America, leaving a country in political turmoil and everything that comes with that, right? The complexities that come with that. And I was highly sensitive and aware of my mom, my dad, the dynamics of what was going on. But I'll never, ever forget not complying with his propensity to avoid Mm. or her propensity to fly off the handle. Mm. And when they came together and say, okay, choose who you guys want to live with, I'll never forget saying, absolutely not, no. Mm. I'm not going to choose, I won't. And I realized that throughout my life, there were release valves for Mm. resentment and anger and Mm -hmm. bitterness. And really, just by how God made me, Mm -hmm. by the grace of God, Mm -hmm. he made me more of a fighter, Mm -hmm. which is makes sense in the context of the history of my ancestors and my family. So I have a lot of respect. Nothing wrong with being a fighter. No. 
<laughs> just saying no. Yeah. No, I had yeah. a keen sense of justice, right? Mm-hmm. And boundaries. A keen sense of justice and boundaries, even as a child. But you know what? That didn't come without pain either. Right. And, and what I liked about it, it, it all hurts, David. And you and I were talking right. about this the other day. Like it all, It's all going to hurt. You know, just which pain we, do you want to deal with right. and when? If we let it, pain will be a great teacher. Mm-hmm. If we let it. But... It won't be. We we don't have that opportunity if we run from it or if we deflect it, or shame ourselves in it. That's shame not productive. ourselves in it, or put or, or or turn around and put it on somebody else. Mm-hmm. The ability to go sit with our pain and maybe do some journal notes, reflect on our history, and bring some things into conversation with one or more other people. I think this is how we grow. And this is how our pain is. You know what? We don't eliminate pain. It either eats us alive or we allow it to be transformed. Mm. Transformative, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. What a great book. I wish we, I I can't wait to have another. Well, I'll come back. Oh, yeah. I can't wait to talk to you. Please. I want to encourage everyone to read Death of a Fisherman and send comments Because what I'd like to do, especially those of you that are in Southern California, I'd love to have David either do a day of rest with me. And those of you who are local, I'd love to have David come to that event. We will certainly have signed copies of his book there for you to purchase. We'll also put the book on the podcast uh forgive me on the website yes and and make it available to you but thank you i would love to have a question and answer segment for our day of rest and i know i'm just popping that that's right (laughs) if you're in town we'll 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 look at the calendar and see what works yes we can coordinate but definitely we will have david back to speak to us about when lost men come home and he has a second volume right there's actually, I'm actually working on the third edition. I should say the third revision. My flagship book is Our Journey Home. But you image. want you included um, women mm-hmm. in in the well, second. Well, they, they came the, when 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 Lost Men Come Home was originally uh, a collection of notes. Uh, it was a recovery group for men. I had been asked to start a group to help men recover from porn addiction, and I said, no, no, I don't want to do that." Uh, these people asked me they wouldn't they wouldn't take no for an answer and a few months later me and a few guys started this little meeting and over the next couple of years the thing just blossomed and we had oh. scores of men and we were just together working the 12 steps together and then at the notes became the first book a couple of years into that women came in and said hey we we're going to start using the book and and uh, our meeting stayed separate for men and women but they taught us an awful lot. Well, I'd like to get my hands on those resources. Okay. So we'll talk about that so we can see how we can advance okay. those tools and resources okay. and get them distributed to our listening audience. Well, thank you. I wanted to ask a question surrounding that as well. You mentioned in an earlier conversation that you're mentoring ministry leaders. Is there mm-hmm. any way that people can kind of plug into those groups or? Yeah, go to spiritualleadership.com. Okay. That's the website for the Leadership Institute and look up their journey of recovery. Mm-hmm. I am just mentoring. I'm not doing any administration or marketing or anything for them. I am a deeply emotionally committed 
and soulfully embedded faculty member with the Leadership Institute. Incredible organization. I'd like to talk to yeah. them. Yeah. yeah. Well, just uh, yeah. Troy Walling is the executive director. Send them a message from the website, Troy Walling, and then from there, people can get plugged into groups. Some of the groups are meeting face-to-face. Some of them are doing Zoom. They are building something very special that will certainly outlive Is me. there a cost involved? You know, I don't know. I think that what they're, you know, they're a nonprofit. I'm sure that they're going to. Yeah, I'll uh, figure it. We'll call them. They'll appreciate donations. Yeah, yeah. Keep them floating. So awesome. we'll close with this. Thank you, David, so well, much you. for making time for this. I can't wait for thank our next you, conversation. Thank you, Natalie. Of course. Thank right. you. Bye-bye. God bless you all. God bless you. All right, everyone. Don't forget our foundational day of rest is on demand to support you in your pilgrimage. Use the promo code podcast in all lowercase to receive a 10% discount. For updates about rest and this podcast, please visit our Instagram or Facebook, The Place of Rest. If you'd like more information about Virginia or to support and join the cause of rest, please go to virginiadixon.com forward slash collaborate or call 949-289-5935. Thank you for listening to Rest with Virginia Dixon. We'll see you next week.